Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, October the 19th, 2022. Wednesday being, of course, the middle day in the week for some people that is the worst day of the week because they don't enjoy their jobs and they want to quit. Uh, we are in the midst, of course, of what some people think of as a pandemic of quiet quitting. People are leaving jobs because they're unhappy working. And we yesterday we talked about quitting as the essential first step to a life of freedom and radical change with an old friend, Keith Boykin. Many of you be familiar with him as a very prominent commentator, political commentator on CNN. He has a new job out called Quitting, Why I Left My Job to Live a Life of Freedom. Uh, Boykin is a remarkable man. He went, from Los he went from New York to Los Angeles, and he seems to have invented and reinvented himself perpetually. And in my conversation with uh, Keith yesterday, he talked about how technology can finally liberate us, that the AI will do all the heavy lifting and we will be liberated uh, to live lives of freedom and radical change. It's an attractive notion and it's one that my guest today, Trond Undheim, a futurist and the author of an interesting or the co-author of an interesting new book, Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operations, has done a great deal of thinking about. Trond is joining us from Wellesley, Massachusetts. Trond, is Keith Boykin, so to speak, barking up the wrong tree? Is, uh, is AI going to liberate us? Will it do all the heavy lifting to free us so that we can pursue lives of real freedom? You know, maybe someday. I think that's possible. Uh, in my PhD in 1999 to 2002, I investigated this idea, this early idea of uh, the nomadic worker that would be untethered from all of the physical constraints of the office. And it's a, you know, it's an alluring idea. And it's an alluring idea that now with AI being much more advanced, because when I was researching this back in 1999, we were not even talking about Zoom, right? So yes, that would be fantastic. Uh, there are some challenges, however, with this notion. Uh, and that had, simply has to do with uh, the fact that if you are going to try to convince somebody, you better be in the place where you have the most things working for you. And uh, in many cases, and certainly, you know, talking about our new book, Augmented Lean, when that infrastructure uh, of work is so tethered to a factory floor, tethered to machines, and to people around you that are organizing material that has been coming in that you need to ship out, obviously there are some constraints to this notion. So it is an alluring notion for office workers. I would have to say to your friend from the show yesterday, um, I think he is somewhat optimistic that AI is going to erase all of the friction of the power of place, which is a immense and beautiful thing actually for human beings. The fact that we prioritize being in the place where we think we can have the most impact and where we are enjoying ourselves the most and by the way where we are the most productive and you know in our book augmented lean which is what we are talking about here when you're looking at factory work 
Factories are physical places. It was a big surprise that during the pandemic, some factories were able to fully operate. Um, yet this whole pipe dream of this like 24-7, you know, lights out factory where everything is just robotic and wonderful, that is not the case yet. Uh, and that's incidentally one reason why we wrote this book, because there has been this idea on um, the human front that it would liberate us. But on the other side, there's also the scary prospect of automation actually making human beings and the workforce completely redundant. And I think that is sort of another, it's not a dream, it is a fear, it's a specter of, of, of great awe and, uh, and fear. That has also not yet panned out. There was a big MIT work of the future study recently that right. they went you're, looking you're for robots. You're very much involved with MIT. You've been involved with their startup exchange. Um, Trond, we done a number of shows on the metaverse. Mark Zuckerberg seems to be betting his company, formerly known as Facebook, on the metaverse. Uh, we had Matthew Ball, you're probably familiar with his work, the metaverse, how it will revolutionize everything. How do you think the metaverse is going to change factories and work and the nature of production? Are physical factory workers or people who traditionally physically showed up at factories, are they going to be able to work from home, perhaps with 3D printers and manufacture in some sort of augmented or virtual reality environment? You know, maybe in the distant future, that can be the reality for some workers. And there, Of course, some managers were already doing that during the pandemic, and I'm not saying that doesn't happen. By the way, the metaverse is actually a real thing in industry. The industrial metaverse is emerging now, uh, and it's not a joke, uh, you know, because it, it, it enables, you know, digital twins. So you're kind of copying a digital version of as much as you can of what's going on in a factory, and you're simulating it uh, in, in real time digitally. And you can, uh, you can simulate uh, both, you know, crises in your factory, and you can observe a lot more of what's going on while using these digital tools. Uh, it is really, really useful if you are trying to design an automobile or doing something with experts or teams of experts that previously would really have to come together and, and they're expensive to put together. So you can do these kinds of design sessions. Um, and so for specialty situations, um, high definition, virtual, but much more uh, to, to the point of our book, the augmented version, which is adding tools, uh, usually digital, but also physical tools that you are using kind of on your body, whether they're goggles or they're masks or helmets or, you know, whatever it is to extend your senses. This is a real thing. But I think what we're saying in the book is that way before all of these things, whether it is, you know, Zuckerberg's avatars or what, what you have, way before all of these things become even meaningful in the consumer space. And by the way, right now, they're not meaningful at all. They are, you know, they're a bit of a joke, right? But all technology in its beginnings uh, seem like a little bit of a stretch. So I'm not dismissing the metaverse, but I do think it's very, very important in a factory setting. We're trying to innovate. We are responsible for the production of the stuff that mankind runs on you need to have a realistic perspective on what actually produces the near-term productivity, but also not just chase these, you know, percentage-wise uh, in increases, you know, the little efficiencies here and there. 
Um, and a lot of the machine tools currently are doing that. What we are saying in Augmented Lean is, um, the reality is a lot of the software implementation in industry has copied this sort of automation approach and hasn't really listened to the fact that you need to really cater to the users, in this case, the, the great workforce that is in manufacturing and industry. And if you think about it, this kind of investment, Silicon Valley, for example, made a big choice uh, you know, uh, three decades ago and invested a lot of money in the productivity of the office worker. Billions of money, right? Billions of dollars. Um, that same investment didn't happen for industrial production. We were stuck with this idea that, you know, ever more efficient robots that we were not going to really care too much, you know, how they interacted with the workforce, because the idea here was to replace the workforce. That would solve all the problems. Well, yeah, there is this big disconnect. Point. Yeah, it, it is a very good point. The Silicon Valley wrote off the factory. They assumed it was 20th century it would be replaced by something else. But they didn't write off the office worker or uh, the, the creative worker. You use this term augmented. And of course, it's the title of your book, uh, co-authored book, Augmented uh, Lean. And there are two ways of thinking about the future of reality in, in our high-tech world. Um, virtual reality, which is... Uh, Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse, and then augmented reality, which means something quite different, which means that there'll still be a conventional reality, but perhaps it will be augmented by pieces of technology which we will wear or perhaps even be somehow implanted in us. Are you a believer? Is this the essence of your book in augmented reality over virtual reality, Tron? Um you know, Andrew, we start much earlier than that. Even even before any kind of augmentation in the you know in the sci-fi version of augmentation, which is you know there's some device that is augmenting things in in some fancy way. What we're talking about is right now with software apps that are tailored to to uh, to users, companies can build their own dashboards and actually make work a lot easier on their operators with very, very simple, no-code software tools, meaning they don't even have to rely on systems integrators or these very advanced big packages that they have to kind of buy licenses to. They should really just download some subscription tools and, and tinker with them and then listen to the workers on the floor and what are the small problems that they might be having and then see if they can Who's pioneering this? Is it companies like Tesla, who are, of course, pioneering highly futuristic products? Or is it more traditional manufacturing companies that are augmenting production? Yeah, that's the that's a great observation, Andrew, because in the well, automotive... It's a question. I don't know what the answer is. So all I'm well, asking... Well, so I think in the automotive industry, they went too uh, quickly to automation, right? So they haven't yet fully discovered what I'm talking about here. It's actually, incidentally, the, what we consider the slow manufacturing sector that, you know, isn't perhaps as immediately eye-catching as the uh, automotive industry uh, or, or sort of semiconductor production or something like that. It is actually industrial tool making and, and, and other types of uh, both, uh, you know, discrete and, and other manufacturing that, 
that have discovered this and are implementing it on, on, on their shop floors. But, you know, it is also moving along supply chains in, in, in all industries now. It's not, you know, a super recent discovery, but it, I guess it has emerged over the last uh, five to 10 years, I would say, right? And what it is, it, it builds, of course, on some of the advancements of office productivity tools. And it, of course, builds on, on cloud software and stuff like that, which, you know, is still not enormously prevalent on factory floors. But, you know, slowly, slowly, these things are happening. And the thing that we are describing in the book is that the... Uh, the impact of this is actually enormous, despite it may not look so uh, futuristic. But the impact on workers, the empowerment effect, the um, types of things that individual operators now can do. And, and, you know, if you think about it, Andrew, in the olden days, we were very, very fascinated by first by Ford, you know, and Taylorism and all these very, uh, you know, exciting things that, you know, once was happening on, on, on fa in factory floors. And then again, you know, we were fascinated by the Toyota production system and, and, and then uh, ostensibly in the U.S. by kind of the, the quality movement in, in Japan. So there is a way that... Right. So, so, so my question, to Tron, and going back to Keith Boykin's point, you know, quitting is idealized because work is still seen as being alienating. Um, you talked about Fordism and traditional ways of working on the shop floor, which were profoundly alienating and wrecked the body and the mind. We did a show a couple of years ago with uh, Sarah Jaffe, for example, a, a left-wing um, journalist. Won't work, won't love you back. How devo devotion to your jobs keeps us exploited, exhausted and alone. Um, it, this augment, this new revolutionary augmented production that you talk about is it gonna is it gonna alienate workers less is it a more meaningful experience to to, to work in augmented production as opposed to being just a a traditional worker on the shop floor could it could it solve this problem that everyone hates their jobs especially these these factory jobs honestly i've spent two years now doing field work in factories. And I was not an expert on factories. I was, however, an expert on kind of what's now called the future of work, right? We've talked about this in office work and, and, and digital transformation more generally. And I have been completely shocked by both the very um, small but very impactful changes that I can see on, on these factory floors and how excited uh, workers are you know, down to the very, uh, you know, the very operators who don't really have a lot of education, but they are super enthused by having much more information at their fingertips. If you think about it right now, if you are a worker in a Stanley Black & Decker factory and they, they're selling tools, right? These tools and, and the production of these tools is now so connected that if you are a worker and, and if you have access to some of these applications, that maybe even just your supervisor built, you can actually perhaps realize that I'm walking into a Home Depot or some other home uh, improvement store right now. You can figure out that I brought it home. You can maybe even see that I'm using it, you know, e in the evenings and, and you might even intuit on your own. You know, I think I, I should install the light on this tool in a different place. And I'm going to tell my manager about it because I've been I've been looking at this and it fits with, you know, the data that seems to be coming in about how. So you can actually 
steer just in time the kind of information that the workers have. And it's so much more meaningful when you are a worker and you can see what's coming uh, you know, down the pike. You can see you know, what's going to be coming into the store, this, you know, to my uh, station today. And where is it going? And what's happening to all You're this stuff? You're almost presenting doing? work on the shop floor, Trond, as a kind of video game as an interactive video game. Is that what you're suggesting? Is that what this new, uh, what, what you describe as uh, augmented lean reality might be on the shop floor? Well, I think this is all up to each quality manager and engineer in, in every factory is how much, you know, do you want to make this a, a theater? How real do you want to make it for your workers? But what we're saying is without very, very advanced tools, Digital work instructions is sort of where this whole thing starts, because let's be concrete. What are we talking about? The first application uh, of the kind I'm talking about is simply instead of workers having these massive sheets with things that they have to tick off and, you know, read manuals about, you know, what are the quality steps I need to execute for, you know, for this product to, to leave my station and you know, not get into trouble with the manager next week. Digital work instructions enabled by sensors, and this could be as simple as something you buy in an electronic store that's then connected to perhaps even just a, a, a PC or ideally just a much uh, cheaper little device that you know performs like a server function so we can gather and send data. And now you know right away, maybe it just gives you a red light because you're picking the wrong type screw, right? I mean, how much more interesting, isn't it, to get the feedback real time? I can just imagine that if you think back on, you know, I don't know, putting up an Ikea bookcase or something, every kind of uh, experience you may have had with reading instructions on paper. Just think about that in your work. If your work is to put together something that's actually quite complicated to put together, what if you had that feedback in real time? And, you know, the manager the week after that's sort of beside the point, okay? You put seven screws in the wrong place. You already knew that. What does this do to hierarchy, um, Trond? Another of the problems with the traditional shop floor and indeed the problem with traditional work and why there's such an epidemic of quitting is we don't like bosses and many bosses don't behave very well. They're not very responsible, professional. Are you suggesting that in a sense, technology can replace hierarchy? On the shop floor? I'm saying that technology certainly alters the control. Or augment, shall we say, augmented hierarchy, to, 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 to coin a phrase. Well, the hierarchy doesn't lose any power. I'm not suggesting that this is a way, you know, when you empower one group, that doesn't mean that the other group is without power. It just alters the relationship. It becomes, yes, a much more equitable relationship. It becomes a relationship where every part in this chain could be construed as innovating. It, of course, is more challenging because no, you're no longer just a manual worker who has no responsibility. You have all potentially, right? If you are given the information just in time, you have the tools to improve your own work. Right, so, so, so the workers are em empowered and they, they're accountable, more responsible. What about the issue of empathy and morality? We've done so many shows on AI and what it can and can't do. One of the world's leading AI experts in Australia, Toby Walsh, suggests that our superpower is empathy. And so we're wasting our time trying to make computers empathetic. Um, Margaret Mitchell, who was fired at Google, uh, believes that we have a, 
a moral responsibility, perhaps, to, to make artificial intelligence more ethical. Uh, how might this impact the shop floor when it comes to empathy and morality in this new augmented workspace? Well, clearly, uh, empathy is important in every job function. Uh, it just hasn't been measured or visible uh, in, in every function before. I think this, the kind of electronic transparency that this represents just makes all parties uh, potentially just more um, accountable to what they're actually doing because, you know, everything uh, could be recorded. Uh, now that is a big discussion, right? How far should you go? Yeah, I mean, to put it mildly, Tron, that's the dystopian element. Jeff Bezos is uh, pioneering some of this in, in his investment and Amazon is doing this. This workplace where everything is watched and everyone can be measured, that's disturbing, isn't it? That's not a good thing. No, that's not a good thing. So I, so I, so I think all of these developments, you know, you you have to communicate with your employees. You can't just introduce all of these things. What I'm talking about is is very very simple type of observation, like you know the sensors. I'm talking about that information. You can simply say it's relevant in the moment and it'll be aggregated. But you know you're not going to go back and then track and say that you know Tron was the one who who messed up all the time and then published that on the internet. That you know it is very very important to have this mix, and we, we call it the augmented lean uh, framework is a mix of two things. It's bottom-up initiative, and without that, you have zero innovation. So this is a great thing. Uh, but there's, of, of course, also top-down governance. So you have to control certain things uh, within reason and uh, only you know with permission. You can't just start measuring all kinds of things with all these sensors and AI and have machine learning kind of track every worker's uh, details and, and and then you know uh, come back and and hit them with it. This is uh, I think an equitable contract that you, there's a new type of contract you need to basically have. A social contract you mean between worker and yeah. management? Yeah, exactly. How does this affect unions, Trond? How could it? The unions are making a comeback. I'm a big fan of unions, a big supporter of the reunionization of the workforce. Lots of headlines every day about unions at Amazon and Apple and all these other big tech companies. Um, how does your notion of augmented lean in the workplace shape or reshape labor unions? Well, I'll let them speak for themselves, but I think anything that uh, is a empowering tool in principle that workers themselves demonstrably are saying, we like this because we are in control to some extent you, they're actually developing these tools themselves. That's what mm -hmm. we're arguing in the book. You know, there shouldn't really be these massive investments from top-down management. Everything that contributes to industrial production starts with what in the industry is called Gemba walks. You know, you walk around and you check what are the issues. There is one school on the left, a Luddite school that sees all digital technology as being against the interests of the workers. You're saying that that's not the case, that some of this new technology, especially this augmented technology, can actually benefit the worker and that the 21st century labor um, labor network or labor organization, labor unions, they should be embracing new technology, which actually empower the worker. Is that what you're saying? I think these things are contingent. I'm not saying 
every type of technology that uh, you know starts with the intent of helping a worker ends up being positive for the worker. These things have to be monitored. I think that labor unions have a very, very important rule in, uh, role in, in tracking these things and making sure that it actually indeed contributes the way that I hope uh, it will. It is a very liberating moment for uh, the global uh, manufacturing industry, and I think it has a very, very key role to play in this increasingly risky and uh, sort of strange environment that we're facing with all these kind of cascading risks and and uh, a new crisis that ke keep coming into the global production system. Right, um, and the, the, the crises so. are existential ones. Um, you know, all this is bent uh, trend on making us more productive. You are remarkably productive. You, you know, you have a popular podcast. Uh, you're involved with a VC group, Antler, I think, as a partner. You're uh, astonishingly, uh, you've, you've worked with the MIT Startup Exchange. You've published a, a huge amount of books, um, including this new book, uh, Augmented Lean. How are you so productive? Well, I'm glad you think I'm productive. I have to say it's all about priorities. I just have found a little bit of time over the last five years to write down uh, thoughts uh, and, and do some true research. I spent a lot of time on my smaller kids earlier, and I have had the time now to, to really uh, write down some of those reflections, uh, luckily. But the other thing is, I think it comes down to really hard priorities. I, I, I'm asked this question quite a bit because I spend a lot of time on some things that people consider very different issues. So unless you have a framework that sees it as kind of the same thing, all of the books that you referenced, they might look very different and yes, productive, but there's a pattern here. And right now I'm involved in a project where I'm sewing all of it together. And I think it'll be a little bit more visible because the, the, the common pattern here is the relationship between innovation, risk and technology and, and the fact that technology is embedded in a social change process. You cannot just invent technologies and expect it to either you know, succeed or change the world. Uh, all of technology has to fit in a social context. That's also probably why technology is developed. Even entrepreneurs will admit uh, this. Tron, you, you've seen Blade Runner, of course, haven't you? Yes. yes. One of the great movies. I often bring it up in this show. There's a wonderful moment at the beginning where uh, Harrison Ford is investigating what are called replicators, uh, people who, well, people, quote unquote, who appear to be human, who aren't, who are machines. Um, you, your productivity is remarkable. How, how would you prove to someone that you're not a machine, that you're a human being? Well, I mean, face to face, right? Uh, I well, think we're, we're, we're doing this on virtual reality. So how would you convince our audience that you're not a machine? What's proof that Trond Untheim is a human being rather than an AI bot? I mean, my attempt would be uh, to crack my regular bad, uh, you know, daddy jokes. I think, you know, humor comes through and it's impossible at this point. It is impossible to impersonate bad humor. Tell me one of your worst daddy jokes, Trond. How many kids do you have? I've got three kids. All my all my jokes are really bad. Well, tell me the worst. My my daughter is always embarrassed by my jokes, so it, it gives me great pleasure embarrassing her. Tell me your worst daddy joke, Tranda, which will convince our audience and me that you're not a computer. 
They are all word games. So, I mean, this morning, what was it? I said to my daughter that, um, let me see if I can remember. How old is some... your daughter? Uh, she, she's, uh, she's 10 and, uh, you know, we joke around all the time. And uh, th this morning she did laugh. I have to remember this joke. She was the first joke she had laughed. So that's actually a bad example, but you know, I, I, I can't even, the, the whole thing is I can't even come up with uh, my own jokes right now. I can't even remember my own jokes, but they're all just plays on words and they're probably not even true word game jokes. Uh, I, I, I can't even remember my own jokes. That's how bad they are. Well, you've convinced me you're not a, you're not an AI. I don't think an AI would have come up with such a creative, empathetic, and interesting and funny response. Trond, what, what a, congratulations on the new book and, and all these other books. As I said, I mean, you seem to come out with a book almost every week. Um, what else uh, are you reading these days? What books do you enjoy? You know, I brought three books for you. Um... To take a look at. They're not new, though, I must say. So, I mean, I, I guess the, the, the first one relates to a point that you talked about. That's Empathy Works by yeah. Sophie Wade. I had her on my podcast. I, I, I'm still trying to learn a lot about empathy. and, and yeah, empathy. The Have you had um, Sherry Turkle? She's, she's the queen of empathy so from MIT. I'm sure you know her work. Yeah, I know her work. I haven't had her on my podcast, but I, I have read her, her work and on, on every level, both technologically and philosophically, you should get her. She's very smart. But I, I haven't heard of this woman. I'll have to look at her book. What's the book called? Empathy Works. Interesting. Yeah, you should take a look at that. Uh, because she thinks that uh, it, it also can be weaponized in a, in a positive way. You know, it's a, it's a, a key to competitive advantage. Yeah, well, I, know, I have to her. say, John, I don't like this term weaponized. Someone was talking about weaponizing their phone. I think we need to retire that word. It's not very helpful. I agree. That was a poor choice. I think metaphors, you should be uh, more careful. That was uh, actually not, not a great, great choice. Uh, well, a better choice of metaphor is this book. It's not a new book. Um, I had this gentleman on my podcast, but, you know, flourishing is a better word for sustainability because, and, mm. and this is uh, John Ehrenfeld, uh, another ex-MIT person, actually. But, you know, he had a kind of a realization, uh, uh, you know, once he realized that sustainability is an answer to a question they never really asked, which is, what are you trying to create here, right? It's a negatively formulated word. Uh, it's super, super interesting. It's actually the topic of my next book that I'm writing right now, on uh, uh, environmental and e ecological technologies and innovations and risks. And the thing is, flourishing, it's at least a metaphor. But the thing is, what are you flourishing for? Right? Flourishing is even just a metaphor for floral mm. and I thought flowers. you were writing a, your new book is on health tech, or is this the one after health tech? Uh, yeah, no, that was last year. Uh, I am uh -huh. definitely interested in health. Um, You're a ubiquitist. Trond, don't keep on telling me about new books because then I'll think you're a machine again. And what's the third book? Uh, the third book is, uh, I mean, you must have uh, read this one. Yes, um, yes. I'm okay. reading it just because I'm trying to understand what, uh, you know, what a very traditional mindset. I think Bill Gates has a very sort of traditional mindset on solving problems. And I was just curious on, you know, how he would go about explaining uh, all of these things in a, in a sort of a very matter-of-fact way. And I have to say, it's, it's done very well. Uh, I'm very impressed with the pedagogical content of, of, of this book. It's actually a pretty good overview of all of the 
main calamities facing us. I and do, however, okay, think that this... Perhaps we'll avoid a climate disaster. We'll have to get Bill on. If you're watching, Bill, you're more than welcome. Yeah, right. You should have him on. I think he's very lucid on, on these issues. But I do think that there are some more clever solutions out there, and we need to really seek out those truly uh, you know, exciting, off-the-wall, new types of solutions. And I'm a little bit worried. Uh, I don't know about you, Andrew, but I don't think... Uh, that we have enough mega projects looking at uh, uh, these existential uh, risks, but also the opportunities, right, from ecological uh, crisis. Yeah, we did a show. Uh, you might read his book, actually. Michael Bess has a new book on the four existential crises threatening us, climate, pandemic, artificial intelligence, and nuke nukes. So you might have a look. He's a historian at Vanderbilt University. It's an interesting book, too. Yeah, I was listening to your podcast with him. He uh, is definitely going to uh, be in touch, uh, hopefully, with with us because, uh, you know, the project I'm currently working on is existential risk. And, and the, uh, the challenge with that is he lists four existential risks. Uh, it's almost universally agreed that these are the biggest risks facing humanity. Um, I'm not so sure. So my current project actually is uh, trying to figure out in, you know, Cascading risks might mean that risks are interacting in new ways. So the end result could be that not only are these four interacting in ways that we don't understand, but there could be other, maybe smaller risks that are not on our yeah. agenda currently. They could probably you know the work of Martin Reese is really the world's leading authority, I think, on existential risk. He's an old friend. He's actually coming back on the show next month. So I'm going to do a whole show on that. Yeah, we uh, uh, are. I'm fully aware of him. He has uh, founded, of course, the Cambridge uh, Center yeah. for the Study of Existential Risk. So there's there's three big global centers now for the study of existential risk. They are, you know, at Oxford, uh, Cambridge, and now at Stanford, where I have uh, gotten involved. So the interesting thing is they each of them these centers have uh, quite different approaches. Uh, Stanford now is a, I think, a more empirically based, it's a newer initiative, uh, and, and it focuses on, uh, you know, what I think is Stanford's strength, which is this combination of a, a deep technology uh, perspective with a really big focus on society. You know, they have a big school of social science, a very important psychology, sociology department, and, and many, many multidisciplinary centers and efforts. So so I think, you know, the, the problems that we are facing, they are bigger than the most obvious kind of emerging technologies that we think are causing them or or indeed of just sort of the climate problem. They are the intersection of all these things. That's really what we need to be looking at. Um, what Martin Rees did, however, is put everything on the agenda. And, you know, being a cosmologist and, and a physicist, he um, instigated a lot of work um, which, you know, incidentally led to what they just did two weeks ago, right? They intervened and uh, proved that we can actually stop and uh, or alter the trajectory of an asteroid, things like that. So, you know, we are sort of bombarded, uh, Andrew, with the risks from all sides right now. And there are people wondering if we're going to even make it to 2050. I happen to be a lot more optimistic than that. But I also don't think that we can sit here and relax. So for me, it has been really refreshing, I guess, to move a little bit beyond startups, which, of course, all have this very sort of expansionist perspective. And now to take this more perspective of you're innovating, but 
but what does it all end up with? And 